Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. I'm Brendan Hansen. And I'm Jamie Stegmeyer. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. In today's episode, as you just heard, we are joined by Jamie Stegmeyer, the designer of games like Scythe, Viticulture, Tapestry, Charterstone, and also uh, the pub- a publisher through his company, Stonemeyer Games, of games like Wingspan. Maybe you've heard of it. And to- in today's episode, alongside Jamie, we will be going through and ranking our top five waning decision space games. So we'll start with a very brief discussion of what that means, and then we'll get right into our list. Um, but before we do anything, Jamie, I need you to kind of settle an argument Brendan and I are happen- having about the title of this episode, which is, <laughs> okay. I think we should call it Top 10 Waning Decision Space Games, because I know a lot of people are going to click on that. Technically, <laughs> we're kind of doing a top 15, so Brendan feels like that's not ethical. What are your thoughts? <laughs> you know, I, with my videos, I've kind of given myself freedom just to put whatever number is actually there. I think I had a top 16 recently. I have a top 26 coming up. Uh, so let's go. I, I, I don't know if the, the ethicality is, is part of it, but let's, let's go with the real number. Let's go with top 15. All right. Done. I didn't frame it as unethical. I just <laughs> framed it as unsensical. Unsexual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair. All right. All right, with that sorted, Brendan, why don't you start us off and give us a little bit of context about what a waning decision space game is? Awesome. I would love to. So one of the things that we've done over the course of the last almost two years of running this show is trying to frame how we look at decision spaces. And one of the ways that we've done that is look at the ways that they change over the course of play. And we've sort of sorted them into a few primary buckets, one being waxing decision spaces, where decision spaces grow over the course of play. Um, one being static, where they stay mostly the same. Uh, and then also, there's another one I'm not going to include, but waning, where the decisions over the course of play really shrink down in the scope and options that you have. And that can take a few different forms. But mostly, I think what's most important is that the overall arc decreases in the options you have and the decisions you're making. Um, yeah. And today on the show, we're taking into account games that either have one element that's waning or just the entire decision space itself is waning overall. Yeah, that sounds great. And I think really well put. Um, yeah, I think for me, what I was thinking about with waning is like that the feeling that the walls are sort of closing in as I play the game. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think one really good example of this is a game like Azul where at the start of a round, you have a ton of tiles you can take uh, in different numbers and allotments in the different colors. But by the end of that round, you're literally going to have, if you're the last player to go, you have a single choice, right? So it's like a very definitive, a lot to a little choices on your turn. And that to me is like quintessential of the waning decision space feel. And waiting decision space games, not always, but oftentimes will have quicker decisions towards the end of the game than the beginning, which sort of stands in contrast to a lot of waxing decision space games like Engine Builders, where you start with a few decisions that are fairly quick. And then by the end of the game, you have tons of options because you've built up this vast engine that's given you more potential. In a waiting game, typically you start with lots of options and then you pare down to your choosing between two things. And in some waning decision space games, like Jake said, maybe you'll wane until there's no decision left. You've blocked your board completely in a game and there's nothing remaining you can do or you've played all your cards in a trick-taking game, for example. Awesome. So let's bring our guest into this. Jamie, are you tracking with us first? And secondly, like, uh, <laughs> are, are there things about a waning decision space game that you particularly enjoy or maybe don't enjoy? Yeah, I, I, I love that you guys invited me for this topic because it's one that I haven't thought about very much. And when you originally said it, I, I was expecting it to be difficult to think of games that I liked in this space because it seemed I, I like kind of I, I think I thought that I like games that open up as I play where I start with only a few decisions so that I can onboard myself into the game easily. And then that decision space broadens throughout the game. And but we'll get to the we'll get to the list later. But I was surprised by how many games, including a number of Stillmire games that we'll also get to later have this type of decision space. Um, and I think you guys list some great reasons here that like it can increase tension throughout the game as things get tighter and tighter. Um, th- that element of, of restrictions and constraints can actually be really great in games to have that. Um, you mentioned the idea of quickening. What did you mean by quickening? I'm curious about that. Oh, by quickening like the playing time or the playing turns? 
Yeah, the playing time, just the sense mm-hmm. of momentum that as the turns yeah. themselves are going faster, the decisions are leading into themselves as you see your path through your remaining options. Yeah, I think sometimes like one thing I get annoyed by in games at times is when like I feel like the last round of the game takes as long as all the other rounds. You know, if it's a five round game and like the last round takes up like 60% of the play time, to me it can be like, okay, we're at the finish line and now it's starting to drag. And typically when you have the more of a waning decision space feel, that kind of uh, at, like confronts that challenge. Yeah, I think it, it was either you guys or another podcaster may have mentioned Lost Ruins of Arnak as having that effect, where like the mm-hmm. last round can take just as long as as the rest of the game, um, which can feel good in some ways, but yeah, it can also, you know, it, you're kind of expecting at that point the game is coming to a close, whereas right. you still have like half the game to go in that last round. If you're doing good, it feels great because you're like, I'm so yeah. powerful. I'm doing all of these things, and if you're maybe didn't have the best play. Or, you know, whatever up to that point, and you're just kind of sitting there like, I'm out, I've lost, and now it's <laughs> everyone else is comboing off like crazy. Right. I think, too, with these waning decision space games, sometimes they can be frustrating because oftentimes you end up in a decision point where you're choosing between the best bad option, which mm. for a lot of people can be fun, but can also be really frustrating when you're not. You're looking at the table and you don't have a sense of what the best thing you should do is because everything feels bad as it's waned to just a few few choices. Yeah. Awesome. I'm curious. Looking at, I'm looking ahead a little bit, but a lot of the things you guys are saying make me think about the types of things that I often enjoy in cooperative games. Like this idea of tension, restriction, uh, agony. You mentioned agony as a term here where uh, you're, you're having these really tight decisions near the end of the game. I'm curious if any will show up on the list. I did not. Actually, I have one cooperative game on my list, but um, but I don't see many here. I kept all my games a secret, you so, did. <laughs> yeah. so that we'll have uh, some element of drama potentially as we're going through them. Um, so you'll have to wait and see if I have a cooperative game listed. Okay. But with that in mind, if it's okay yeah. with y'all, maybe we should jump into our list and get started with some honorable mentions, if any have any to share. Let's do it. I do have a little list here. I, I'll, I'll throw out some Stillmeyer games real quick, and I'll just go through the list and name very succinctly what I think is the winning decision space, and you guys can comment on them afterward if you're familiar with the games. The first one is Rolling Realms. Rolling Realms is a roll and write game where you're kind of writing numbers in different mini games, and throughout each round, you're filling up most of those spaces, and you have fewer spaces to write numbers by the end of the round. Um, in Scythe, Scythe has kind of a completion goal-oriented uh, waning decision space because inside that you move towards the end of the game by completing goals like you have four mechs uh, once you have four mechs uh, you can't get any more mechs and you've completed that mech goal and so you go off and focus on other goals so you have this little sense of completion but you have a narrower uh, decision space as to like what you could actually complete at that point um, in tapestry you have your capital city that you're filling up with th- with different things and you're also completing tracks in tapestry so once you complete a track that track is kind of off the board from then on you're looking at other tracks Wingspan, um, this kind of came up earlier, where you actually have a few, fewer actions per round in every round of Wingspan. So you start off with eight actions in the first round. In the last round, you only have five because you have this engine. And it actually goes against one thing, uh, Brendan, I think what you said is generally true in games where turns are shorter at the end of the game in these types of games. In Wingspan, the turns get longer at the end of the game, and that's why we had fewer actions but longer turns near in the, in the end of the game. And Libertalia, Libertalia kind of has this throughout the game where you are uh, you, you have a hand of cards and you're playing them. And by the end of each round, you only have a few different cards in hand to choose from, but, uh, but you can still feel clever in Libertalia because you've kind of saved up, you've saved those cards for the right moment in the game. I have Libertalia on my short list as well, and I really like that you start with like a big hand of cards and it goes down. I think the reason it doesn't feel as much like a waning decision space, some of the others on my list is just because it has this kind of the cool mechanism where you get to like keep some cards in your hand and then you're drawing six more to it uh, in each of the subsequent like voyages, right? The larger rounds of the game. So even though you have like this waning decision space in within each of those voyages, like that gets bigger and bigger throughout the game. Um, but yeah. I totally agree that it fits here really well and I'll agree with your point completely on wingspan as well. Uh, and I, I, that's probably my favorite part about it, that it doesn't, it really doesn't overstay its welcome. And in the last few turns of wingspan, the game totally shifts from like building your engine to like, 
it sneaks up on you. You're like, I have three turns left and there's no way I'm going to accomplish all of my plans. So like, what do I prioritize? And I think that's like quintessential of the waning decision space. I think too, Jamie, I really appreciate you explaining the scythe example because one, as we go on, I think a lot of my examples lean into waning from the perspective of the options that I have or what you can do in the game. But Mm -hmm. there's also this flavor of what you want to do based on the objectives that is shrinking. And I think that those types of I have one example of that in my list. And I think those can be really delicious because you those types of games, because as your agency increases, you get to focus more and more. And sometimes Mm -hmm. the focus is what makes winning decision games really exciting. So you can have the sort of dual I'm growing an agency, but what I want to do is decreasing. And that gives you momentum, actually, rather than the opposite. Did you guys have some some non-Stolmeyer examples that came to your mind? So I have some honorable honorable mentions as well. Yeah. So I mentioned I had Libertalia as one. Another one is So Clover. This is like one of my absolute favorite party word games. And I've talked about a lot on this podcast, but the waning decision space of it is like, it starts out as this like big puzzle of all kinds of different cards and all kinds of different orientations. And as you start slotting one in, you're like, this fits. It really shrinks down like what you're thinking about between the other cards in a really satisfying and fun kind of cooperative way. So that's that's one cooperative example here. Mr. Jack is another example from this. I love this as just like on the deduction side of things. So it doesn't really work for the person playing as Mr. Jack, but the person who's playing as like the detective trying to capture Mr. Jack and you're like slowly eliminating possible suspects. Um, So I think deduction games is another example of things that often has like a waning decision space in an interesting way. So I wanted to highlight that as well. And I guess lastly, uh, I'll include Lost Cities here. The thing I like about Lost Cities for waning decision space is that like it's self-imposed in a lot of ways. Like as you play the game, you're playing different cards uh, into your expeditions and you're like opting in to no longer being able to play cards of a lower value into that expedition so you're like imposing this waning space on yourself and the extent to which you want to do that is the whole game so i think that's a really interesting example of a waning decision space and another game i like a lot lost cities was going to be one of my examples too because it's such a great example of how sometimes waning decision space games can feel like you're sort of fighting against the tide of the game trying to hold as many options as you can until finally the the game just crashes in on you and you have to commit to what you've committed to um, I think that also, Jamie, sort of is what the link to co-op games might be somewhat too. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of things like Pandemic and the way that the board will build up and your options of how you can have a successful win condition just weighing down. Totally. For me, yeah. two other honorable mentions real quick. Uh, hey, That's My Fish. This is a game where you start the board full of tiles and every time you move, you remove one of them from the board. So the board is literally shrinking over the course of play and you play until there's no board left, until it's completely waned. So it's a great visual representation of that. And then my final example is Cartographers, uh, a roll and write map tile not really a tile laying game, but a tile drawing game, more or less, in which you're filling up your board and reducing the viable options that you might have. And I think a lot of roll and writes, we might talk about a few more on our list, fall into this category because so many of them end up being spatial puzzles and spatial puzzles really lean themselves towards being waiting decision spaces because you're filling up a space. As you fill up a space, the options reduce. Your example of, hey, that's my fish, reminds me of kind of a a whole genre of games. Any game where you are kind of populating the board with a lot of different tokens and things that players can take throughout the game. Uh, I think Lost Origins of Arnak has that, Clank has that. Um, uh, Any of those can can, have that decision waiting space or that waiting decision space where there are fewer and fewer things. The tension is from like, which player will get to this pile of goods Mm. first and take them from the other players. Totally. Interesting. So it's cool to like, when you think about how many different genres of games can fit into this like a framework of a waning decision space because you know clearly we could also come up with examples of deck building games and rolling rights and everything that are also waxing but uh it's interesting that a lot of them seem to fall you know especially in like rolling right that might tend to fall more into this waning space and a deck builder might turn tend to fall more into the waxing space and yet like designs can sort of pull and choose uh, how they want to incorporate this into the decision space. So I think that makes it, you know, just an interesting thing to be thinking about as we think about some of our favorite games. So if it's all right with y'all, let's go ahead and transition into our top five lists. So one thing I wanted to say before getting into my list and interested to hear how you guys kind of came up with yours. For me, I thought I only included games that I really love, but within the list, 
I'm not necessarily ranking just my, my number one isn't necessarily my favorite game in the list. Mm -hmm. I think uh, these are all favorite games, but that's like the one that like, I feel like the waning decision space element of it shines the most. So that's how I put together my list for context. Uh, How did y'all do it? Same here. That was my approach as well. Okay, perfect. Dang. Do I need to restructure my list? No, (laughs) no, no. (laughs) I ranked mine sort of with my order of games in which I enjoy the most that have waning elements, I think. So for me, it's the game at the top is the game of these five games that I enjoy the most right now. But I know which game I would put as number one to answer to be more in line with your list. So I'll note that when we get to it. Perfect. All right. Well, Brendan, why don't you go ahead and do our first game? Let's go Brendan, me, and then we'll give Jamie the final word. The final say. Okay, awesome. So my first game is a game called Palaces of Carrara. Uh, First came out in 2012. It's a Michael Kiesling Wolfgang Kramer game that just got re-released. It's about collecting stones to build buildings in different spaces. And this is an example of a game where a lot of it you're... Uh, your agency is actually increasing over the game, but in one meaningful way, it's it's waning. And that's your scoring opportunities. Uh, you're building different types of buildings and you're also building buildings in specific locations on the shared board. And as the game goes on, every only one location can be scored by any player at any given time. So if I want to score the red city, I have to score it early because that mean if Jake or Jamie, if you score the red city, I'll never be allowed to score that city. Uh, and then also for myself, you're sort of layering on top of this, the, these building puzzles where there's five or six types of buildings and you're trying to build all of one type of building uh, and then score those. So your scoring opportunities are reduced because you can only ever score each type of building once as well. So for me, this game highlights the tension around scoring opportunities. Uh, like you said, and I think it, it the tension between, oh, if I could just get three more buildings in this one city and then score it, it would be this amazing turn but no one will ever give me that option so i i think for me it highlights that sort of agony of oh if i could just do one, afford to take one more turn and maybe i could uh, but i really shouldn't i should be responsible and just score it now and take what i can get so that's the palaces of carrara by michael kiesling and wolfgang kramer great great choice and i one sort of theme i think that comes out in at least one of my games too is sort of in that game in particular you almost have this like mini game of chicken going it's like when is somebody going to score the uh you know the red buildings or whatever and you want to kind of ramp up and ramp up but if you push it too far then the other person can beat you to the punch or whatever or just take it away from you even if they don't get that many because it's such a big opportunity for you um and i think that's something that kind of comes up in this type of game in particular um so my first game or the number five best waning decision space game for me is underwater cities um so this is a game that is interesting I think an interesting include on this type of list because it's a game that really sees players ramping up in power and production over the course of the game uh, that affords you to do, you know, more and more stuff in any given round. Um, However, the structure of the game is basically plays out over three key phases. The first phase, you're building up, then you get a production, then you're kind of building up, then you get a production, and then you play it out one final time. And as each of those phases play out, I feel that the decision space really wanes a lot in two key ways. Um, first, it's there's like a worker sort of placement element on the board. So as somebody takes an action space, that's no longer available to you. So that has like a really key feeling of like opportunity loss whenever one of those gets taken. Now I'm not able to do that. Um, so that is a clear waning decision space. And I think the other way it feels waning is at least the way I play the game. And maybe this speaks to the fact that I'm not the best at this game. It's like, I'm always out of resources by the end. Right. So by like the last turn of, of any given, like of the three, like main phases in between production, I'm like dead broke. I don't have any resources. And so it's like that feeling of like, I'm just trying to squeeze whatever resources I have to their max potential uh, and make the most of this. Uh, really feels like something that's like limiting and disappearing over the course of the play. Um, and, and it's a game I really love. So I had to include it here. And I think that that speaks to the whole genre of games where you are kind of building up something on a mat where there's limited spaces on that on that mat to fill up. Uh, I mentioned tapestry earlier, but it, that you start off with this wide open array of things that you can choose from and, and uh, you have fewer and fewer spaces to fill in as the game continues. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. Also, 
also too, I want to highlight Jake. This is actually this type of waning decision space. I think it's one of Jake's favorites and it's what we've dubbed sort of a punctuated waning where there's certain points in the game where the decision space will open back up. So at the end of each round, you clear off those workers placement spaces and it's opened back up again. But then over the course of the round, it wanes down again. So Jake, I just felt like we should introduce that term because I imagine a lot of your examples will be this sort of punctuated waning where you get to have this arc, not over the course of the game, but over the course of each of these rounds that give you that tension. And that creates this interesting texture and pacing to the game. Great point. And so other games that could fit. So I chose this as like my representation of a punctuated waning space. So I don't have other games that fall into that on this list, but games I could have included in this spot, but I felt like it was most pronounced in underwater cities. Um, But if not for that, this could have been Castles of Burgundy. This could have been Bruges. This could have been Azul. Uh, All of those actually follow that exact same kind of like decision space flow of big, then shrinking, then big, then shrinking over the course of the game. I'm gobsmacked that Castles of Burgundy isn't on your list. Jamie and I have shared our picks and Jake's are secret. So (laughs) it was on a lot of versions of this list. But uh, yeah, and the reason it's not an honorable mention because I knew I was going to talk about it at this point. Sure, sure, sure. So Jamie. Well, yeah, my number five, I partially picked this. So I picked Space Base. I partially picked it because I really enjoyed when you guys talked about Space Base fairly recently. It's a game that I loved. I don't think you guys loved as quite as much as I do, but I still agreed with everything you talked about. But as you were, so I'm saying like the, there's this element of Space Base that, that you didn't like so much. That element is something that I really like about the game. Um, space Base starts out wide open. Uh, like you, you, you can... You can assign cards to any slot in Space Base, number 1 through 12, and usually, uh, depending on whether or not you play with the variants, it is completely wide open as to which space you choose. So it starts off with a wide open decision space. And as the game continues, um, that decision space narrows down in two different ways. One is soft, one is a little bit harder. The soft one is that uh, whenever I play Space Base, I tend to either go wide, so I tend to try to fill in something in every slot, and so if I'm going that way, then as I play, more and more slots have something in it. And so I'm looking for those empty slots. There are fewer um, relevant slots that I need to fill in. Or I'm going narrow, and I'm trying to just fill in a few specific numbers and focus on those numbers. Um, and again, if I'm focusing on that, then only those numbers become relevant throughout the game. The other way uh, in Space Space is that it, it is a game with uh, kind of the tipping point that that I feel sometimes in deck builders, where where especially like the traditional ones like Dominion, where there, there's a tipping point in the game where points become everything. So your engine building doesn't matter at all anymore. Your your income doesn't matter anymore. Your your currency doesn't matter anymore. It you need to get those points to race towards the end of the game and hopefully try to be the one who triggers that end of the game and has the most points. And so anything other than that matters a lot less as you as you proceed in the game. And also tied to the cards are are the dice that you select in space space because you can choose each individual die or you can choose to add add the dice together and again if you've gone after certain numbers and focused on certain numbers then you have less of a choice there as the game proceeds like if i roll a one and a four but i've really focused on building up my five it's not really a choice anymore at that point obviously i'm going to activate the five so these are all things i think that you guys brought up in that podcast but i really like those things I, i i like that the game kind of almost feels a little bit automated near the end of it i find it a very relaxing game and i get a lot of fun and joy out of watching that engine almost run itself in the final third of the game. That's great. I, I love that um, sort of your idea here for why this fits into a weighing decision space, which I totally agree with, is less about like the actual like objective decision space of the game, right? Like you always kind of have roughly the same amount of options, but it comes down to like what is like subjectively, like you as a player are deciding like these are the only optimal decisions so it's like the that is shrinking as you do more like less and less things are fitting into optimal decision so it has uh you know it it that has the feel of waning decision space and i totally agree with that i think it's a great point i think it's not a mistake too that dominion just got invoked while saying this because dominion presents as this game with this sort of static decision space where you could buy whatever you want at any point in the game but strategically it's really a waning decision space because you make a few buying decisions early on and then you've committed to those combos and then you're seeing what happens. So you're making lots of decisions early and then by the end, you're making very few. So I think it fits perfectly even if you're maybe doing more later in some of these games. It's super interesting. All right. Okay, I guess it's number four. Yeah. Okay, so this would be my number one, I think, on this list because this game for me is all about the agony 
of finding the right piece as the walls close in on you. And I'm talking about Calico, a tile laying game from Flat Out Games uh, about building a patchwork of hexes in a constrained hex shaped board. Uh, and in this game, there's six different patterns and six different colors. So you're trying to fulfill lots of different requirements and colors you're bringing together, patterns you're bringing together on your board, and then also some three core objectives that you have where you're trying to do colors and patterns overlaid at the same time. Uh, and I, I can't remember how many pieces you place in this game. It might be 20 total, uh, but you just you fill up your board. And when your board is completely full, uh, the game's over. So it really is about the options that you have waning over the course of play. You start with more or less a blank board besides those three goals that you have laid out. And as you go, things wane down and wane down, wane down. The, your ability to pursue certain objectives close. You, you see the sort of paths before you close off. And usually every time that happens, someone at the table groans or maybe says, <laughs> I can't believe you did that to me. I really needed that tile. And this game... Uh, it took me a while to come around to it because in my first play, I was sort of like, oh, this is just a game about having a bad time together. <laughs> and, and I think it, it can be sort of like that. But it's one thing that Calico has highlighted for me. The more I play it, the more I enjoy it, because it has that sense of being able to stave off for longer the inevitability of not being able to do what you want. So the ability to sort of do that feels great. And when you know you've kept your options option open for longer, you feel rewarded as a player. You're going to score better. And I think there's lots of room to improve in Calico. And the agony gets a little bit less. You can sort of blame, oh, that tile just didn't come up. And that feels fine, too. So that's Calico. I think agony is the, the perfect word for this game. This is a game that I wanted to adore. I I, I give it two plays. And maybe I should have given it more plays. But um, we I, I it's a game that does start off so wide open that you feel like anything is possible. And by the end of the game, very little is possible. And most of your goals <laughs> have not been accomplished by that point. Um, and I, 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 for as adorable as it is, I love cats too. I, lo I, I love the theme. I, I couldn't get past that end of game agony, especially when compared to how, how open those possibilities feel at the beginning of each game. Yeah. And the potential for them, the design lets you imagine you could accomplish so much because you can overlay all these objectives on one another. So it sort of mm. says, oh, yeah, just dream big. And in reality, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your, your dreams should not be too large. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to jump in with my number four game for waning decision spaces. And it's one that I think Brendan had as an honorable mention. And that is, hey, that's my fish. Um, mm. To me, this is like the quintessential waning decision space game if somebody's like i don't understand waning decision space um this is the game i would like put in front of them to explain it because brendan you said it exactly right uh as you play this game you're literally dissolving the board out from under you uh you're both trying to you know get more fish but you have this like very important sub goal of cutting off people's routes right you're trying to lock people onto their own little uh, smaller ice flow sections so that they cannot progress forward. Um, and it's just a really fun, delightful family game. It does have, I should say, you know, before anyone rushed out and buys this game, it kind of has like a fatal flaw for me, which is at least my version of this game has like really tiny, like one inch tiles. Hexes. Yeah. Hexes that you have to like slot together perfectly. And it's just kind of a pain to play. Um and it's, you know, I played it first online and I just loved it so much and I bought it and I was like, oh wait, I have to like set this up for 15 minutes to play for five minutes. Like that's kind of stinks. Um, but like the gameplay itself is, is really incredible. So that's, hey, that's my fish. And you said this is a fun family game. But this is a this is a mean family game. Yeah, that's this a good point. A, yeah, this is a feel good feeling bad family game where you yeah you crush each other's dreams. But I think that highlights you know we just talked about crush dreams in Calico. I think that's a lot of what waning decision spaces evoke is you see the potential, but then the walls close in. Yeah, so that's and I think with one. this one too, it ha it's the other one that I was thinking of that has like this great game of chicken where like I think when you first like level one of understanding this game is like you're just flying all over the board to get like uh big like the max is three fish on a tile so you're just like oh i'll just go collect all those but then as you get more experience with the game you realize this is really a game about just like moving one space at a time and like incrementally like fighting people because as soon as somebody moves like too far it's like boom i got you now i cut you off and you're stuck over there and not coming back i didn't put it on my top five but a similar weight of game is blockus have you guys played blockus you know, i have a classic abstract game um but it, it 
it, uh, it, but and it does the opposite where it doesn't require that setup at the beginning of the game. You're adding polyamino tiles to the board and having fewer, fewer spaces where you can place those tiles throughout the game. Nice. I'll have to give it a shot. And Blockus is Blockus. I haven't played it either. Jamie, is that a shared space tiling game? You're all playing to the same board. Yeah, it's a shared space. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you're trying to cool. connect tiles, your own tiles by, uh, by the tips of the corners. So you can't share mm. a flat edge with your own tile. So you're just trying to really, it's a game of trying to last as long as possible. Um, and there comes a point in time in the game where you can't place a tile, and that's when you're out of the game. Awesome. Nice. Cool. Is that back to me? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, number four is one of my favorite cooperative games that I think has stopped being a, a game in production at this point. It's a game called Time Stories. It is my only cooperative game on the list. Have either of you played Time Stories? I have. I've played probably three scenarios or so. Okay. And I have not, yeah. So it, it is a it is a cooperative game where you are um, going on missions in uh, different periods of time and usually with a fantastical or sci-fi element to them. And you're, you're doing these time loop style runs where you'll, you'll go into this scenario, you'll learn some information, and then you'll run out of time and be sucked out of the scenario back into the future. And, uh, and then you'll do another run within the, usually within the, the same session. You'll go back in using that information that you have and you'll do it slightly differently. And it has a really interesting curve of information. So there's kind of an informational and somewhat of a, a priority decision space here in terms of how it wanes uh, because you're getting more information. But as you get that more information, you're realizing what is relevant and what is irrelevant for your for your goals for that mission. So by the final run, which is usually maybe the third run that you go through, uh, you are ignoring a lot of things that you've already seen or done so that you can focus on accomplishing the core game, the core goal for that mission. So I really like that, that winning decision space, this informational element of uh, we've, we've already done this thing. We already know that. Uh, let's focus on what we, what we need to do in this run to, to hopefully win the game. Have either of you seen the uh, Tom Cruise movie edge of tomorrow? Yeah. James, yeah, I always think about that when I think of time stories, right? Where I guess in that movie, he's like a super soldier that every time he dies, he wakes up and gets to like relive the day again. And he's like trying to basically win a war single handedly. Um, and that's how I feel playing time stories. It's like, all right, we wake up, we go over there, we hit that guy, we get the key, we go over here, and you're just like racing through it. And like when you get that perfectly timed and sequenced run to like efficiently accomplish a puzzle, it feels so satisfying. I think, um, Jamie, I always, this is kind of like an aside, but I always think of this as like one of your sort of like flagpole like uh, game takes because a lot of people aren't huge fans of this one. I've seen you mention this before on your like top 10 lists and, and that type of thing over on your YouTube page, which people should check out. Um, so I think I think that's when I saw this on your list, I smiled because I think that's such a great uh, include in a, a different way from any of these other ones that, a game can play with this waning decision space. Mm -hmm. What I will add, I think uh, with future iterations of it, like the game has evolved a lot over time. There were early on, you would run a scenario and you would really truly start over from scratch the next time you go into a run. But in some of the later scenarios, they let you keep some information. Sometimes they let you keep some items and retaining some sort of sense of progression, I think really helped the game in those, those later scenarios. That's great. I need to give it another try. I would say my experience have been like uh, kind of like polarizing, like the first play out of the box with like the asylum scenarios, like still one of my like favorite gameplay experiences of all time, just like getting to like do that the first time. And then when I played a second and third one, it kind of started feeling like, yeah, I've already seen this movie before and it didn't yeah. like do enough different things to keep me hooked and trying them. Uh, and it can be also frustrating when you're like, Yes, you'd hope that that third play is your uh, final one. But if it's not, then that's where like my groups were kind of like, okay, we're done with this, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm so intrigued, too, that so much of the loop of this game, it sounds like, is you figuring out what the what the optimal decisions are. Like you, you're it's waning because you're figuring out what you can do, not or what you should do, not just what you can do, which is so interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so my number three top five winning decision space games is a classic and it is Uwe Rosenberg's patchwork patchwork is uh, a tiling polyomino game where you're filling in your own personal board with different patch shapes that are all different polyominoes. And for me, this wanes in two ways. Obviously the primary way that we've been talking about with tiling games, where you're adding pieces to your own board and you're shrinking the space that's there. So you get this sort of interesting tension around, Oh, this piece won't actually ever fit on my board, but 
in patchwork also you lay out at the start of the game all the tiles in a circle on the board so you know what tiles are coming up and for me that's one of the most interesting waning elements because at any given time you only get to choose from three of them but there's certain holes that you might wish you could leave in your board that you could fill in later and that piece you will know if it's still in the game or not uh, and by the end of it there's just a few tiles left in the game so it's it's not as if the tiles are being recycled or there's new versions that are coming through. And I think that the tension around what could happen being clear alongside the board filling up just works really well and is is really interesting. And it makes uh, finding a path through that puzzle of things closing in feel really rewarding when you play and you're able to fill in things perfectly. Totally. I think a great example. And another one that like you really get like the visual aspect of the decision space waning as well. Uh, you're like, okay, I've got all this space to play with. And like pretty close to the end, you're like, okay, this is getting pretty dicey for me. I love uh, this example. And I really like what you said about that, uh, the open and perfect information of those tiles that are come out, coming out. Because they could have been in a bag or something like that. But it's so nice to know, to have that visual where you don't have to remember that this very specific shape is still out there or not. Um, and you can see exactly where it is in that, in that uh, action selection circle, essentially. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'll jump to my number three waning decision space game. And this is a game I've only played two times. Um, and it is Anno 1800. So I played this first at the Geekway Con. And then I played it a second time at Gamers Ranch. Um, and just a, there's a small like little story about that, Jamie, uh, which was that I was going to Gamers Ranch on uh, with you and some other people. And I put in a Google Doc that I was really excited to try and play Anno 1800 because I had such a fun time playing it at the Geekway convention. Um, but I didn't, before I posted that, I didn't look at the Geekway, or, or sorry, at the Gamers Ranch library on BoardGameGeek to realize they have like every game ever, including Anno 1800. Um, and I was like, oh, whoops, like, oh, well, not a big deal. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of days before, maybe like a day or two before, I was on Instagram and I clicked on a friend of Decision Space podcast, Gnarly Carly's Instagram story, and it showed her packing for Geekway. And she had been like, she's like had Anno 1800 as like half of a giant suitcase <laughs> she was like traveling with. And so I hadn't talked to her ever before. I had to, or I uh, had to send us like a direct message. It's like, I think you might be bringing that game on my account. Someone you don't know, like, please save yourself the trouble. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, nice of you to reach out to her and save her that space too. Uh, but anyway, so the reason I picked this game, I think it fits. Is I, this is kind of a lie because this is also a little bit of a punctuated waning decision space game again. Um, but it fits really well for a couple of reasons. Uh, the setup for this game is you just have a board that has like a million different goods on it. Um, and I think each good space has two copies of it, meaning that once those two are gone, Nobody else is able to add that to their individual player board to be able to produce it. So that's one clear way the game wanes. But the way I, the reason I included on, I think the highlight of this um, is that you have a number of workers and you can send the workers to uh, produce the good essentially on your individual player board that will allow you to then buy new goods from the shared board to put back on your individual player board. Uh, and then at a certain point, whenever you want to, you can take essentially a buy, like a pass turn where you do hold a festival and you get to have return all of your workers from your player board to your supply to make them available once again. Um, so to me, the key waning decision space here is like the way you want to stretch that as far as possible to be like planning your most efficient sequence through this so that you can, you know, use all your workers. There's ways that you could gain more workers throughout uh, so that you're like always playing and never taking that celebration turn. At least that's how I've experienced the game. Maybe that's not optimal play at all. I really don't know. I've only played it twice. Um, so to me, this is a punctuated waning space to use kind of our terminology here. But instead of being imposed by the rigid structure of the game, like in underwater cities or castles of Burgundy or Azul at the beginning of each new round, right? All of a sudden, whether you want to or not, you have many more choices. This is dictate. It like allows the player to sort of dictate when that happens, um, and I think that's really interesting. So I think other games that could kind of fit in this same slot would be something like 
Transatlantic is a game that I really like that does the same thing, except for you have cards and there'll be like one card that allows you to return all your discard back to your hand. Concordia is the one I was thinking of. That's the other one. That's yeah. a big game that works in the same way, right? Where it's all, you can return your cards whenever you want, but it's really about like stretching that weighing distance space as much as you can in between doing that. So that's my pick. Jake, isn't this also the game where the game end condition is when one player has played through, they've achieved all of their objectives and there's a mechanic where you can opt into new objectives? It is, yeah, it kind of, it, that is true. That's part of the game. Okay. I think that doesn't that work doesn't as well through. as you think because you can't really opt into taking new objectives. You sort of have to. Okay, interesting. <laughs> so the, that's what, that, that's like, has this like funny element where it's like the end game sneaks up on you kind of quickly, but it's a long game. And you basically play till you're out of cards in your hand. And at about two hour point, everybody will be looking around the table at each other and be like, wait, we all have more cards than we started with. Uh, <laughs> so that element doesn't really feel waning. Yeah, I yeah. gotcha. But then yeah, like 30 minutes after that, you're done. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Cool. So kind of in the same realm of uh, punctuated uh, decision space a little bit is uh, my number three pick, Cat in the Box, which is a recent trick-taking game. Um, you guys mentioned trick-taking as a genre that that commonly has this type of decision space. And in Cat in the Box in particular, it's a game where uh, cards don't have suits. And so we each have a hand of, of random cards numbered, usually one to eight, one to nine, depending on the player count. And you assign the suit or the color to that card when you play it. And you remember that in the game by putting a little token on a board that shows that this three that, that Jake just played is a blue three because Jake said it's the blue three. And then for the rest of the round, no one else can play a blue three because Jake has already played the blue three. Um, and the in, in Cat in the Box, one of the biggest, most important things is not to is to be the not to be the player who causes a paradox. So that means uh, near the end of the round, there are only a limited uh, number of cards that haven't been played, and you want to avoid being the player who has to say, "I can't play a card." Like, yes, maybe I have a two in my hand, and there is a red two that hasn't been played yet. But I've already declared at some point in the game that I don't have any red cards left because I wanted to play a different color. If you've done that, then you have to cause a paradox. You cause that that round to end and um, and you lose points instead of gaining points for each trick that you've earned. And so Cat in the Box has this, you guys mentioned tension and agony, these great adjectives to describe uh, games with this waning decision space. Cat in the Box has a huge amount of tension each round as you have fewer and fewer possible cards that you can play based on what you've declared and what other players have, have played. Um, Brandon, have you played this? I know Jake has played this, but yeah. No, I haven't. I'm dying to play it. So I love trick-taking games, Jamie, but my wife loves them 10 times more than I do even. And, and I haven't heard the pitch of Cat in the Box. I'm aware of it. But now that you've said that, I'm just like, I need to get this game for, for Maya. But the... I almost added Fox in the Forest to my list and almost added Spades because I think that trick-taking games in general are so interesting because they're games built around waning decision spaces where the best players at the table have the best understanding of what shape the wane is going to take, right? Whoever has the best understanding of why certain people are doing things based on hidden information, the card still left in their hand is going to most likely win. And I think that that's such an interesting structure where you're rewarding someone for understanding how it's waning specifically and why certain people are making certain decisions around that waning arc. And Cat in the Box sounds phenomenal with the, the potential to wane down into a paradox in that way. I love that turn of phrase. It's all about understanding the shape of the wane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess it's back to me. Yeah, yeah, number two. Yeah, okay, awesome. Number two. Okay, so I couldn't escape this list without including including a roll and write. And whenever I think about roll and writes that I want to play that are waning, which is most roll and writes, I always go back to Welcome To. And I think that, so Welcome To is a, a waning decision space game where it's a roll and write in which you're trying to fill three different streets on your personal player board with different numbers, uh, ranging from one to 13, I think. Uh, but... The trick of this game is that you always have to go in ascending order, but you can put numbers anywhere you would like on your board. So there's this real tension around where you should be cert putting certain values because you also are having different powers come up with those numbers. So you might be pushed towards wanting to place a pool with this specific value, meaning you could only put it in one specific spot. Um, and also you can sort of opt into waning more quickly. You can cut off your own options by if you have a space on your board where maybe say, you could leave room where this space could have a seven, eight, or nine in it. Uh, you might 
lay down your numbers such that you put just a seven there and you've cut off the other potential options, forcing yourself to have an eight and a nine in the following spaces, whereas someone else at the table might leave themselves more options. So you get to opt into how aggressively you want to wane your own decision space. And I think that that's a really interesting way that a game plays with this idea of a waning decision space, uh, that it lets the players either stay more open or be more aggressive. And sometimes there can be huge rewards for being more aggressive. If you put something in exactly the spot you need, like a pool, as I mentioned earlier, you're going to get a really big point payoff, but now you really need the cards to come out just how you need the cards to come out. And you've sort of put yourself into a trickier decision where you have fewer optimal decisions. And this game ends when a player fails to take a turn three turns over the course of the game. Uh, so it literally wanes to I can no longer play. And that's the end condition. Does it also end when somebody completes all the objectives? Mm. I think it might. Yeah. I think it might also end that way. But either way, way, that's still like another way that the decision space wanes, right? To Jamie's point earlier, like once you've completed one objective, you're probably now focusing on something else. I love this game. This was something I uh, also had on my short list of honorable mentions. I didn't talk about that because I could see that you were going to talk about it. But I think it's a great fit for this category. And I think this is also a game that has really grown in my estimation of it. Uh, since we initially recorded our episode on it. And I think when we did that, I was comparing Welcome to more to like all the other board games I've ever played. But as I've played more roll and write games since then, it just makes me think how good like Welcome to is and just the amount of, uh, I just like the amount of rich decisions you get to have in that game is pretty amazing. I think it's a really impressive design. It's the game that it also opened me up to uh, uh, to player count, how how effective roll and write games are to infinitely scaling player counts. You can invite anyone to sit down at, at a game of Welcome to. I think it plays up to I, however big the pad of paper is is the player count at any given time. Yeah, which is super super fun. I played a, a game of this at PAX one time with a room full of an entire sheet, so it's like ninety nine people playing. I'm pretty sure, yeah, which was great fun. The other way that maybe just really quickly I'll mention that's interesting about this is the probabilities of what cards come out is mostly known. So if you've played this more, you can have a sense for when certain things are an option or not. And I like that the deck does get reshuffled, but I like that you can plan around what is potentially going to come. Uh, still be remaining or if three pools come up early you know that pools probably won't be as strong this game and i think that that's really interesting as well the inputs and the outputs can wane in this game yeah yeah it's a it's like an intuitive the deck of cards is intuitive you know it, it yeah. works the same way you would expect dice to work which is really cool design trick i think also um so my number two game on this list is one of the first hobby board games i got after kind of being introduced to the hobby around 2015 and that is five tribes uh famously a worker displacement game uh where you start out with all the meeples uh, you know just as like a mess of meeples all over the board and the way you play the game is by taking meeples off of it by like you pick up all of the meeples from one tile you have to like drop one on each tile on your path. And then whichever one you land on, you get all the meebles of that color. And I think um, it has, it's just like a really interesting shared waning decision space. The game ends once there are no more legal moves on the board following that kind of rigid structure of taking turns. Uh, so it's a game that starts out way open-ended. You can all the different color. I think there are like five different worker colors in the game. Each gives you a different benefit when you pull them off the tiles. So at the beginning of the game, you can do anything you want. Uh, you can surely, you know, get whatever type of worker color you want. And also whatever tile you end on, that gives you like a secondary action to take. So very likely at the very beginning of the turn or game, you can get the exact tile action you want and the exact color of workers you want. Um, but that very quickly becomes more and more difficult to navigate through. Uh, and I think it's it's a great game. Uh, when I was sort of part of my process for coming up this game of this list was just looking at myself and that one just jumped out to me as like a super obvious case of of weighing decision space and I, I think it's a great game to boot this game falls into that category of uh, that i mentioned earlier of a game where you populate the board with a lot of stuff at the beginning yeah. of the game and you're pulling that stuff off five tribes i love with people who don't have analysis paralysis yes because it can be really paralyzing 
the winning decision space of it can actually help with that a little bit. Uh, that can be a, a pro for winning decision space that if you do have analysis paralysis, if you have fewer options as the game goes on, hopefully that should help. Yeah, I, I think like you have to teach this game with like the rules tip of like, yes, we could all stare at this board for 30 minutes and probably find a better move. But if you see a move that seems good to you, just do it. Just do it. And, yeah. and I've had I've had good success with that. And I think some, maybe sometimes just like the absurd complexity of it can like help because, you know, it doesn't necessarily like if I look at this board, I can't like be like, oh, I'm definitely going to like be able to see the optimal move right at the start, especially. Uh, so maybe that can give people a little bit of like a permission structure to not min max as much as they might in a more simple looking game. Interestingly, too, Jake, you invoked Mr. Jack earlier, another Bruno Cathal game. Five Tribes is a Bruno Cathal game. And I almost mentioned King Domino, a third Bruno Cathal game as an honorable mention. Uh, there's also Sobek, another Bruno Cathal game that's a waning decision space game. I think he's designed so many games, we could probably find examples of waxing <laughs> decision spaces on his side too. But it's interesting that he's sort of rift in this space. And I think he's really particularly good at finding the tension around so, you know, waning decision space games sometimes can wane too quickly. And I don't feel that way with his games. Usually they have this really slow descent into restriction that lets you feel like you're in control maybe more than some games do. So it's cool. So my number two pick is a role player. One of my favorite games. It's a, it's a somewhat abstract game with a theme that is not abstract at all. You're building a character. You're building kind of a, a role playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons style character using dice. You're filling in this mat with the dice. And uh, every player is going to place the same number of dice on their mat over the course of the game. I believe it's a total of 18 dice, if I'm thinking about this correctly. Yeah, I think it's 18 dice over the course of the game. And so as you proceed in the game, there are fewer and fewer slots where you can place those dice, and therefore fewer and fewer actions. Um, and each of the rows of dice, uh, three, uh, six rows of three, they have a, a little benefit that you gain when you place a die in that row. And so certain actions actually become unavailable to you later in the game after you've filled in a row. You can't gain that, that little benefit for that row anymore. Uh, but it has a really, in my opinion, it has a really nice sense of completion as you're completing some of these rows mm. um, and, uh, and completing some of the goals that go along with them. There are a bunch of goals related to the colors and the numbers on these dice. I'm so glad you mentioned the sense of completion, Jamie, because I think we haven't used that specific word. But winning decision spaces can do that so perfectly because you have... In, in a waxing game, you know, you typically, when you get more options, that means you're never going to have something that you've finished necessarily. There's always more to do. But on right. the flip side with waning, you can finish it all. You can fill mm -hmm. in your board perfectly in patchwork or you put in all the dice. And that just, yeah. even if you didn't do it as good as you maybe could, it still feels great to look down and say, oh, I've completed this. I, I achieved an objective. That's great. Yeah, I've always been intrigued by this one. Uh, so maybe Jamie, I can get you to teach it to me sometime. And one thing I've talked about recently on the podcast is like how interesting and appealing it is to me. Uh, when games are sort of like designed around like little moments in life that we don't necessarily like perceive as a game but totally are and I think like the idea of that like somebody has built out this like smallest little portion of Dungeons and Dragons right where you're like rolling your character sheet into like a full board game is something that really appeals to me awesome so my final game my number one winning decision space game is Reiner Canizia's Babylonia so Babylonia is a game where the board starts completely empty, except for a few ziggurat tiles that are noted, some farm tiles that come out, and city tiles. And over the course of play, players populate that board with their own tiles. These tiles depict either farmers or nobles, uh, and there's a set amount of farmers and nobles that each player will have that they get to play to the board. And over the course of play, you are taking up spaces. So once you place there, no one else will be able to ever place there again. Uh, if you do that next to a ziggurat, you can get a special power potentially. If you do that on a farm, you claim that farm and remove it from the board. So it starts completely open and throughout play fills in. Uh, and really by the end, because of what we talked about of objectives, you have so few spaces that you're typically typically considering placing. And maybe by the last two or three turns of the game, you, you don't even have a decision left. You're just executing your plan. And this game is, it's tense. It's interesting. There's lots of, I think I love this game as much for the game itself as the fact that it's waning. But I realize that so much of the tension that I love about this game is because of the waning nature of it, is the limited nature of all the tiles on the board. And that game of chicken that Jake uh, invoked about hey that's my fish or palaces of carrara is definitely here as well where it's sort of oh i really want to take that farm but if i could just wait one more turn and then snag it it would be so much better for me and 
the ziggurat spaces are really uh, powerful because you can get special unique player powers and there's only a few of them. So filling them up is strong, but you want to, you get points for the number of ziggurats that you're next to. So it really incentivizes you to go wide, but you want to finish one so you can get a power. So there's just lots of good little waning elements overall. And then you can run out of certain tile types. So overall, my number one waning decision space game is Babylonia. Awesome. Uh, I'll just take a quick moment to appeal to uh, listeners of this podcast. You can join us in our Discord. And if anybody, and I'll include a link to that in the description of this podcast, as always. And if anybody can send me a suggestion for a list, top 10 list type that Brendan won't put Babylonia as number one on, that would be <laughs> like really appreciated. <laughs> Babylonia is actually the only game so far mentioned that I have not played. So I I, I know I've heard you mention it, Brendan. I, I need to get to, this, to the table and give it a try. It's phenomenal. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. All right. I think I'm going to catch you all off guard with this one, but it is, in my opinion, the best waning decision space game, and that is Codenames. And the reason I think Codenames is perfect for this list is because it has that like deduction type of waning decision space. But unlike Mr. Jack, it has it for both the clue giver and the guessers, right? So as clues are becoming uncovered, uh, or cover you're right we figure out uh, what side is, some of these clues are on the red team some of these clues are on the blue team as the person who's giving clues each time a new card is covered it can like has the the potential to completely reshape the puzzle for you and what type of clues you need to give to help your your uh, teammates to guess it and then of course as the guesser right you start out with a grid of 25 cards or maybe it's, it's 20 in the pictures version whatever um, and Right, those are all available to you at the beginning. And then as things get covered up, it becomes less and less. And I think I love it that it has that like weighing decision space on both sides in sort of a distinct way. And I think I also love it for the fact that like whereas some this it still has a lot of the same terminology that we use in all the other ones. There's still like tension. There's a lot of restriction here, especially on the clue giver side. Uh, there's a lot of agony as you're giving clues, as you're guessing, and maybe particularly as you're waiting for your team to guess clues is one of like the most agonizing moments in board gaming for me. Um, but it also like takes the weighing decision space and puts it in like the fun party game space, which is something I really enjoy. So I, I think for all of those reasons, this is my number one waning decision space game. I think you did it, Jake. That That's, you figured it out. And that, that's the <laughs> one. Like it captures all, all this stuff in one game. I can wrap up with my number one, uh, a fairly recent to me game uh, called Planet Unknown. And this falls into a space of several other games that I've mentioned, but it's a game where it's a simultaneous polyamino drafting game um, where you're drafting tiles from a public pool simultaneously with other players and placing them on a planet. You're either all using the same planet or asymmetric planets in the game. And you are moving towards completion. You're trying to fill in as many spaces on your planet as possible. The end of the game is triggered when you, when a player cannot place a tile there. And so it really falls, I, I, I think I've mentioned this several times now, because I really do like the completion element of waning decision spaces. And Planet Unknown has that in a variety of different ways. There, there are tracks that you're moving up as you're placing tiles. So if I place like a green tile, then I'm going to move up the green track. Eventually, I'll probably get to the end of that track if I focus on green tiles. And there's also the spatial completion where I'm trying to complete rows or columns to get extra points by placing those tiles down. And that feels really good too as I'm completing that goal. Um, so it, And it just has this very much so a, a waning decision space because as you place tiles, you have fewer other places where you can where you can place tiles, similar to Patchwork, which Brendan mentioned earlier. I think it's a great selection. Your third game in a row that I need to try and really want to try. I know Paul Solomon, another friend of this podcast, is a huge fan of this, and he's something of like a tile-laying aficionado. So uh, that, you know, the fact that he loves this and that you love it as well is really all the incentive I need to seek out and, and try and play this. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us again on Decision Space. I guess at the close of the show here, are there is there something you'd love to plug? Oh, that I'd like to plug. Um, oh, we do have one of the, the examples I gave in the honorable mention for Stillmeyer was uh, Wingspan. And we do have the Wingspan Asia um, expansion slash standalone game for one to two players coming up. This has its actually its own decision space because there's a new duet mode where when you're competing against one other player, you're playing with this duet, duet mode and you're putting tokens on this map. Whenever you play a bird, you put a token on this, this map on a space that corresponds with that bird. And so 
Um, in addition to all the other waning decision spaces and wingspan, this duet map becomes fuller and fuller, and you have fewer options as to where you can place tokens throughout the game. So it is a thematic plug for the topic of this, uh, this uh, podcast today. And this is an audio format, so Jamie was holding up all these components, oh, and yes, I can I just say that they look beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I was so excited to see a duet mode for Wingspan. I think that it's really exciting to have the potential to it sort of give me a reason to jump back into the box and play outside of Wingspan being awesome. But also the peacock on the cover, Jamie, just gorgeous. So, so beautiful. That box <laughs> is really striking. Yeah, Thanks. I totally agree. Um, well, Jimmy, thank you so much again. And thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Decision Space. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, we have links to our social media and stuff in the description of this podcast. Again, we have a Discord. We'd love for any of y'all to come hang out with us and tell us about your favorite waning Decision Space games. Um, but until next time, we just want to thank Hembry for our intro and outro music. And, and uh, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Hey.